The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So today, uh, I wanted to um, tell a story from the time of the Buddha. Um, as I've been reflecting on the events in our country of the past uh, weeks, months, <laughs> um, I find I found as I reflected on it, some threads of this story kept coming back to me, and so. I thought, um, and as I went into the story and looked at it, I thought there's a lot here to uh, to to explore, and um, and so I thought I would go through the story and at each point um, mention some of the kind of important teachings about basically the nature of our human experience and how we get caught, how we particularly get caught by ignorance. Uh, ignorance and pride and um, and aversion, anger, um, but all of that, most you know, much of that really grounded in ignorance and delusion. So um, the story, many of you have probably heard it, pieces of it at least, is the story of Angulimala, who was at the time of the Buddha uh, a mass murderer. He apparently murdered. Hundreds of people, 999 it said, before uh, he met the Buddha, and uh, had a transformation upon meeting the Buddha, and really um, radically changed his life. So um, the story of Angulimala, and there are aspects of this story that um, are kind of mythological, and certainly... Um, uh, we don't know uh, actually how true it is, but um, my sense is that there is some element of uh, some element of truth, and possibly there was a mass murderer at the time of the Buddha. Um, there's a story in the uh, in the um, the Vinaya around this person. Um, so you know the rules of the of the Buddhist the Buddhist lineage. Um, tell some stories of things that happened in the time of the Buddha around which uh, rules for the monastics were created. And so there's a rule around this person. And so um, I think there's probably some measure of truth to this story, uh, some measure of historical truth to this story. And yet stories get embellished over years. It's 2,600 years ago, so of course stories get embellished. But at the same time, um, I think some of the, the elements that get added... Uh, maybe do reflect, some of them reflect kind of uh, magical thinking. Sometimes it reflects just a kind of a, a, a recognition of, you know, this is how human beings are. So, um, so I'd like to tell the story. And uh, um, from the beginning, the entirety of the story is not in the, the text. There's a whole sutta in the middle-length discourses about this person about this, this mass murderer and his meeting with the Buddha. It's uh, Majjama 86, I think. Let me double-check that. Eighty-six. So it's sutta number 86 in here. But there's a backstory about Angulimala's childhood that is found in the commentaries. And so I'd like to start with the backstory. Um, so apparently, uh, the Angulimala's father was a minister in um, the king's cabinet, and this was a king that was around at the time of the Buddha, King Pasanati, and um, uh, the king's um, the minister's wife was pregnant, having a child, and the night that she gave birth, the um, the father, the minister, cast the young boy's horoscope and uh, found bad news in the horoscope that he was destined to become uh, a bad person, <laughs> a robber. He was born in the robber constellation, which is what that 
that uh, horoscope said. And the same night, too, the king had uh, bad dreams, apparently, and woke up with his, his, um, his uh, arms kind of sparkling, and so he was alarmed. And, uh, and so he, he told his minister about this, and the minister told him about his son's, uh, his son's horoscope, and they debated, actually, you know, they debated killing the boy because of they, that, you know, they were so convinced of his, uh, the evil propensity there. And they decided not to do that. Um, they decided instead to raise him as ethically as possible, you know, with as much love, as much care, as much uh, harmlessness in his life as possible. And uh, he, uh, they even named him Harmless. Ahimsa was his name. They named him Harmless. And he grew up. He grew up apparently very dedicated to his parents and studious and like model child. Um, and he went off to, um, you know, as he grew up, he, he was very good at his studies and he, his father sent him off to the, the main um, famous university in India. And uh, he, be, he was so studious and he was so committed to his studies that he became the favorite of his teacher. And then his fellow students got jealous. They um, uh, felt like, uh, let's see, the story goes, um, since young Ahimsaka came, we're nearly forgotten. We must put a stop to it and cause a break between him and the teacher. So they got jealous and they wanted to, um, you know, they, they, so here, here, is, here is jealousy. Right? Here, is, here is a human emotion. And what it can do in our, in our lives. So in this case, it prompted them to come up with a plan to somehow create a rift between the, uh, the teacher and Ahimsa. Ahimsaka. And their plan was to, uh, to send three separate groups to the teacher with a similar report. Kind of like it's coming from different sources, coming from different areas. This, this, this person is um, plotting against you. So three times they, they came towards the teacher saying, you know, we've heard these stories and, you know, Ahimsaka seems to be plotting against you. So this jealousy led to uh, action to break the teacher and the student through the use of propaganda and lies. Um, and this propaganda was, was carefully done, actually. You know, this is, this is a piece that I think points to something in our minds that's really helpful for us to be, uh, to be careful of. So the story goes on. The first time he heard the story... He said, don't tell me this nonsense. This is ridiculous. I know that's not my student. The second time, they uh, said this, a similar thing. And the third time also added, well, if you don't trust us, you may examine yourself the evidence. So they, they kind of added a little bit of, uh, you know, we, we're so confident in this that we think that if you examine the evidence, you'll find out it's true. That planted a seed of doubt in the teacher's mind. And so this is something that, you know, so this story was wholly fabricated. Ahimsaka was not plotting against the teacher. He was, uh, he was a model student. And, um, and yet this kind of, so this speaks to something in our minds that's useful for us to know. So this is some of the... the what I'm exploring here today is some of the, the, the wisdom or the teaching about how our minds work that it's useful to be aware of so that we can kind of recognize when we might be uh, swayed by things. And so in this case, this is like propaganda. You know, this is somebody repeating lies multiple times and stating it with such confidence that it basically, it plants a seed of doubt or it plants a seed of possibility that that might be true in somebody's mind. This happens all the time. You know, this happens, this happens 
all the time in our, in our culture, in the world, in our history, this kind of thing has happened. This planting seeds of doubt. And, you know, it, it can happen in kind of neutral ways, too. Um, you know, this, when I was... Um, when I was in first grade, uh, I took an art class. You know, we had art in our, in our first grade. And uh, we were taught to draw apples and fruits and vegetables. And the teacher had these very specific ways to do that. And it was, it was, it was interesting. It created beautiful drawings, actually. But she was, um, she was very specific about how she wanted certain fruits drawn. And uh, when people drew apples that weren't perfectly um, round, she said, apples don't grow that way. You, you know, apples aren't lopsided like that. So, uh, you know, you can't draw them that way. They have to be perfectly round. And we're like, you know, even at five or six, we know that apples can be lopsided, Right. And um, you know, she kept saying this, and she kept making us erase our lopsided apples. And, and, uh, and then one day, somebody brought in an, an apple, you know, that was like, you know, really lopsided. And um, uh, she didn't say anything, you know. She didn't make a note of it. She didn't. And I've been mystified by that, like, for much of my adult life. <laughs> Much of my life, it's like it would just keep coming back to me. What on earth was she thinking? You know, how could she not see this? How could she not notice this? That apples are not always perfectly round. And one day um, uh, in my kitchen, I was cutting an apple, and I cut it along the line of symmetry, which apples do grow symmetrically. You know, you can find a line where the two halves mirror each other often, you know, unless there's a deformity to the apple, they grow with the line of symmetry. They may be really lopsided, but you can find a line where you can cut it and the two halves mirror each other. And as I cut it down the middle, and, I, and I, it was a lopsided apple, this memory came back, you know, this memory of this, uh, this woman. And I thought, I wonder, you know, I don't know what was going on for her, but a plausible understanding arose for me in that moment uh, was that you know, I cut it along the line of symmetry and kind of appreciated the mirror images as I cut it open. And I recognized, or I thought, you know, maybe what happened is that in some biology class, she was told apples grow symmetrically as a fact of science and that she misunderstood what symmetry meant. She thought it meant perfectly round. And from that, that kind of uh, view... You know, we, so we're told something by somebody we believe. Maybe there's a misunderstanding, a misperception, a misunderstanding about it. From that point, it's like we, uh, we see... And this is another kind of frightening thing about the way our minds work. But when we have a view or have a perception, our minds function to take in information that confirms that view and doesn't see information that doesn't confirm that view. It actually misses it. And so this is, this is a dangerous uh, functioning of our minds that can be supported by understanding this propensity that we have. It's useful to understand that when we have a view, and so often we have views that we have no idea are in there, this is where our meditation can help us to recognize, oh, you know, actually, you know, even, even things like, um, uh, you know, our own self-views, I'm a failure, for instance. My self-hatred, I had, had a very powerful um, belief that I was no good, that I was a failure. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like with that view, with that perspective, not seeing that it's a belief, it's like things confirm that view and just dig that groove deeper. And even times when, um, you know, around the, you know, being... Um, Hating myself, I was often miserable, and and um, you know, even seeing times that I wasn't miserable, you know, this my mind would do something like this, you know, it's like I would see times that I wasn't miserable, that I was actually happy, and you know, the mind would go, well, yeah, I'm happy now, but I know what I really am is miserable. So you know that this is a way our minds work when we don't see beliefs are operating, we 
selectively take in information. And so the story goes on. The the three groups of students had come to the teacher saying, you know, this other student is plotting against you three times. Check it out. You should check it out for yourself. And it it says that um, uh, the teacher's suspicion was aroused because of the three, uh, you know, it's kind of like the propaganda, the teacher's suspicion was aroused. And because of that, it said in the story that um, he found evidence to support it, even though it wasn't true. And so he, um, he decided that he either needed to kill Ahimsaka or be killed. His, his fear grew to that level. But he was, um, he realized that if he killed him directly that that wouldn't look so good. And so he decided to, um, to manipulate Ahimsaka into a behavior that would ruin him. So this is, this is more, um, so this, this to me speaks, this part of the story speaks to, um, well again, you know, here this is an interesting, an interesting distinction because at this point the teacher believes you know, he's been, he's been told information that was not true, but he's investigated, and because, because he had that view, he found information that he felt like confirmed it, and so he is convinced now. So he's operating out of delusion, out of ignorance. His mind is, it's, it's, it's not so much that he's uh, operating thinking he's, you know, uh, like the, the, the students were operating directly from falsehood. They knew that they were, they were, um, were perpetuating falsehood. At this point, the teacher thinks he's acting on truth. Another, this, this gets even scarier, especially when a person of power thinks they're acting on truth. So this is a this is a, a dynamic in in politics in you know in uh, in history this kind of thing has happened. Person people in power can you know when acting when they think they're acting on truth or when their their um, population thinks they're acting on truth or speaking truthfully. There's a very dangerous power dynamic that happens, and so this is what happened here in the story. So. Um, he called Ahimsaka to him, and he said that in order to complete his studies, there was one last ritual that he needed a gift of, of, of duty, an honor to give to his teacher. And that was, in this case, that he had to bring him a thousand fingers from human hands. And Ahimsaka said, I can't do that. My family has never been violent. We're harmless people. And the teacher just kind of dismissed him. He said, well, if you don't do it, the, uh, you, you will, there will be no fruit for you of your studies. And so this is, to me, this is, um, it's said that, you know, Ahimsaka then, you know, there's, it, there's not a complete understanding of why Ahimsaka followed this. There's, there's speculation that it was because he had this proclivity from his past, you know, the, the, the being born under this constellation of being a robber, so he had this inherent tendency towards violence anyway. And, uh, and so there's all the speculation about why somebody, when faced with such an outrageous demand, would go ahead and do it. And maybe the, all of these speculations actually miss something that we now know through, our, through science, through, uh, through actually studying, you know, kind of the same question around Hitler. You know, how did all of these people do this? Can this happen again? And, uh, you know, studies, studies that show when there's a power dynamic and somebody tells you to do something, a lot of people will do it, even if it seems to be harming somebody. You know, there was the, the studies, kind of famous studies about um, 
people who were brought in and just told by a, a researcher, they said, you're going to be delivering shocks to this person in this other room, and, um, 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 you know, no matter what happens, you just need to keep shocking them. And, and uh, they could hear the person in the other room screaming and yelling, and the researcher kept saying, no, it's okay, you just need to keep doing this. And they, many people kept going, proving to some extent that it, it actually doesn't take much power for people to uh, forego their own sense of ethics. So this, to me, is a, is a powerful piece of the story also, that Ahimsaka in his, uh, you know, kind of, there's, this is delusion. This is delusion on our part of taking up what somebody says because we, I mean, there's, there's some measure of trust, right? There's some measure of trust in his teacher. He's had this teacher all of his his life in the university and there's a has been a relationship that's developed so there's trust there and out of that trust that that there can be that that kind of exploitation and so again the the uh a piece for us here i think is you know and showing too in that in that um that study how people were uh, you know, very uncomfortable, obviously very uncomfortable with shocking people and hearing the discomfort that they were creating. They were very, and I think it was an actor in the other room. I don't think they were actually shocking people, but they believed they were. So, um, um, you know, that, that they were very, very uncomfortable, but they kept doing it. Many people kept doing it. I don't think everybody did at certain points. Some people said, I'm stopping. I'm, I'm not going to continue. Um, but many more people than the researchers thought would continue, did continue. And so to me this speaks to, again, so there's this power dynamic, but there's a place for us to recognize how ethics can support us in our lives. How ethics, you know, when we recognize that um, there's a certain level of of ethics, of non-harming, the ethics in the Buddhist tradition is about non-harming, um, that if we are creating harm, this is a place to really stop and look what's going on. And so ethics in the Buddhist tradition is, is really about non-harming. We're, ex- we're asked to explore refraining from uh, killing, refraining from, t- from taking life, refraining from taking what's not given, refraining from creating harm through our sexuality, refraining from false speech, and refraining from intoxicants, which in the understanding uh, puts you in the situation where you're more likely to um, um, engage in the other four. And so, you know, this is, this is an exploration for us around ethics. And yet, if, if we are asked, you know, in, 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 the case, in the case of the teacher, you know, if the teacher had stopped and thought about ethics, it's like, you know, okay, maybe, maybe there's something else needing to happen here, you know. Okay, so I don't trust this student anymore, but, but to kill the student or to be killed. You know, he basically asked Angulimala to go out and kill a thousand people, basically, the, uh, basically thinking he'd be killed in the process, you know, that he, he would not survive that. So, you know, that, that point was a point of, of ethics, breaking ethics. The point where the students... Um, Lied to create this rift between the teacher and the um, and the the student and Ahimsaka. That was a breach of ethics. And so all along here, throughout the entirety of the story, there have been breaches of ethics. And I, I, I take this too to be a kind of a point of how ethics can really help us to. Um, counter some of the powerful forces of ignorance in our minds. And the powerful sources of craving in our minds. So this is a, this is a big part of this early part of the story, I think, is the, the importance of ethics in countering ignorance and craving. So... Ahimsaka, trusting his teacher, goes out and 
and starts doing this. And, and it's said, though, that he, he began enjoying this, this process of killing people um, and killed many, 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 many people. He terrorized the, the area in which he lived. Um, he was very strong, and so it was very difficult to overpower him. And so, you know, whole brigands would go... This is, this is kind of, part of the part of the story that I think, uh, this is probably, you know, mythological, but it's said that, like, you know, armies would go in and he'd kill them all, you know. So, um, uh, but in any case, he, he kind of terrorized the neighborhood and people started avoiding going into the forest where he would kind of wait for people. He'd initially just kind of wait for solitary people to walk by and jump on them and kill them as they went by. And then he started... Um, because nobody kept coming through the forest and he needed his thousand fingers, he um, decided to go into the villages and, and kill people in their beds at night. And so he was terrorizing the villages and the villages emptied and the, the villagers went to the king. Finally, the villagers of that area kind of made their way to the king and they said, there's this really bad person in the neighborhood and can we do something about this? And... Um, And at the same time, kind of around the same time, um, the Buddha, this is a piece of the, the kind of magical piece of it. It said that the Buddha, and I don't know what's possible, you know, it is said that, that someone with the mind of a Buddha can kind of survey the world and know the minds of people around him. And so this is what it said the Buddha was doing. He was surveying the world and he noticed that uh, Ahimsaka was out there and that he noticed that he'd been doing a lot of killing. So he knew, the Buddha knew about, about the, this, this situation he, in this scanning of the world. And he also recognized that Ahimsaka was not beyond redemption. In fact, he had the opposite sense of this person has gone radically wrong, but he's got the capacity to be, be fully liberated. He's got enough kind of uh, momentum of goodness in him that that's possible. And so the Buddha sets out to try to save Ahimsaka. The other thing that he noticed um, as, he was, uh, as he was surveying the world was that Ahimsaka's mother had uh, heard that the king was going to go uh, bring his army in and kill, kill her son. She had figured out her son hadn't come home from, from, uh, from um, school and kind of had made a connection in her mind that this person might be her son. And she wanted to check that out. She believed it was her son. And so um, she, is, uh, she is going off to see if she can stop her son. She's walking, she's walking towards where her son is hiding to kind of warn him that the king is after him and to see what she can do. And in surveying the, the world with his mind, the Buddha sees also that his mother is on the way and uh, that, Angulim that, that Angulimala is so caught in his um, bloodiness and the fact that he only has one more finger to get, that he would kill his mother to do that. And this in Buddhist cosmology and Buddhist metaphysics, I want to stop for a moment and kind of explain a little bit about that because this is a piece of the story as well. In, in Buddhist cosmology and Buddhist metaphysics, killing a parent is something that uh, prevents awakening in this life. It doesn't make you irredeemable in the kind of ongoing flow of many lives, uh, which is also a part of the Buddhist metaphysics, uh, that we have multiple lives. But in this very life, if Angulimala had killed his mother, the uh, the story goes, he would be irredeemable in this life. And he would be destined for eons in um, basically hell. There's, there's many realms in, 
Buddhist cosmology and there are many hell realms in Buddhist cosmology and so he would be destined for hell. That would mean hell for many, many um, thousands of years and yet uh, the possibility of being reborn at some point and redeeming oneself in many, many eons further. So in, in the Buddhist cosmology, nobody is ultimately beyond redemption and yet there are things that people can do in this life that put you beyond redemption in this life. But at the same time, you know, it's like, uh, well, I'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so he, he, the Buddha decides he will go and cut, cut off his mother so, as, so that he becomes the person that Angulimala switches his focus to. And so that is what happens. The Buddha goes into the forest and uh, he, um, he walks past the place where Angulimala is and Angulimala says, oh, a monk, how easy. These people, you know, they're so peaceful. This will be an easy finger. Uh, again, not realizing, you know, this, this, uh, this piece of, you know, killing, killing a, a monastic uh, killing a Buddha is uh, understood to be also irredeemable <laughs> in this life. So, um, so in any case, the Buddha, if he killed the Buddha, if he killed his mother, bad news for Angulimala. And so the Buddha, um, putting himself in the path of Angulimala, um, does some magic. Um, so this is a piece, the magical piece of the story. And he does this magic where he, while he just continues to walk at a slow pace, Angulimala cannot catch him. So Angulimala is running as fast as he can, but he can't catch up to the Buddha. And uh, at some point he's so frustrated, he's like, what's going on? And he yells to the Buddha, stop, monk, stop. And the Buddha, while continuing walking, says, I have stopped Angulimala. Let me read this place. I'll read what Angulimala says. Um, He called out, stop, monk, stop. And the Buddha responds, I have stopped Angulimala. You need to stop too. Then Angulimala thought, these monks speak truth, assert truth. But though this monk is walking He says, I've stopped. You have to stop. And he wonders, what does he mean? And so he says, while you are walking, monk, you tell me you have stopped. But now, when I have stopped, you say I've not stopped. I ask you, what is the meaning of it? How is it that you have stopped and I have not? And so this is is what the Buddha had hoped, that he could uh, break into Angulimala's... um, uh, kind of stop his mind for a moment so that he becomes uh, available for the teaching. And the Buddha responds, Angulimala, I have stopped forever for swearing violence to every living being, but you have no restraint towards things that breathe. That is why I have stopped and you have not. And so again, there's a pointing to ethics here pointing to the um, stopping of harm. That's a piece of what the Buddha points to. I have stopped harming other beings. I've stopped harming, and you have not stopped harming. Another piece, I think, in a more deep way, I think this points to, and this is, is more based on the, uh, the, the wisdom teachings of the Buddha that um, recognize that Suffering and harm are created in our minds through the engine of ignorance and that the awakening process uproots that ignorance. And so I think there's also this uh, stopping of the ignorance of um, um, what it is that catches the mind, how the mind... uh, is swayed by perceptions and views and opinions. That whole kind of first part of the story where views and opinions and perceptions are influencing action to create harm. 
part of that comes from from the belief that those you know those perceptions and views and opinions some of it comes from the belief that they're accurate some of it comes from the belief that maybe while they're not accurate that the that acting on those is what will lead to my happiness that um that, that that's how happiness follows, that that's how I'll feel like I'm in control, that that's how I will progress in the world, and beginning to recognize that that whole pattern of acting out of greed, out of aversion, basically creates the conditions for more greed and aversion in our minds, creates the conditions not only for suffering in the world, but for suffering in ourselves, and that the, um, the pattern of suffering if what we are interested in is, is exploring stopping suffering, and that's, that's, an, that's, a, that's a point that, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, looking at our minds, that's a point that we need to come to, to move forward on this path, that we, we, we need to come to this place of recognizing creating harm in this world harms myself. And harming myself harms the world. That there's this back and forth um, um, dynamic there. That kind of ignorance gets uprooted as we um, as we explore, looking at our minds and seeing how they work. We start to see these patterns happening. We start to recognize how beliefs influence our actions, and we can begin to recognize, oh, this is a belief. I'm a failure. This is a belief. It's not truth. This, the, the, so much of how we respond in the world is based on beliefs rather than truth. And we can begin to um, be curious about what is believed in our minds and how that influences us. So it is said at this point that when Angulimala heard these words, that he was moved by the Buddha's compassion, and he had a complete, he had a great change of heart. That uh, he recognized, kind of like his eyes were open to the suffering that he had been creating in the world, and he was very moved by the fact that the Buddha had come into the forest because he recognized that essentially the Buddha had done this intentionally. There's a kind of a recognition that the Buddha had, had put himself in harm's way in order to save Angulimala. And this had a very profound effect, the story had on Angulimala. And uh, so Angulimala decides to renounce the killing and renounce harming altogether. He, he resolves, in a sense, to live up to his original name, non-harming, Ahimsaka. And he asked to be ordained as a monk. Because the Buddha understood he had this capacity and understood that he had fully renounced. Again, this is part of the story around a Buddha having the capacity to see into people's minds and understand what they're capable of and what's happening, what kind of transformation is happening in their minds. Uh, So he understood that um, Ahimsaka had had a true change of heart and not a kind of change of heart that was on the surface. And so he ordained him. So Angulimala decided to keep his name Angulimala to Angulimala. Actually, the name Angulimala means garland of fingers. Um, That, you know, the story is that he was threading the bones of the fingers and wearing the the fingers around his neck as a garland. And so Angulimala, his name changed from Ahimsaka to Angulimala during this process of him killing all of these people. He decided to keep his name Angulimala as a reminder, uh, kind of as, a, as a kind of a warning to himself about the danger of going down that route. And so, um, meanwhile, the king is preparing his armies to go... Uh, find Angulimala and kill him. And uh, he knows that the Buddha is in the area, and so he decides to stop and pay homage to the Buddha while, uh, while, while he's there, before he takes his army into the forest to find and kill Angulimala. And um, Angulimala, at this point, has become the Buddha's attendant. 
So he's, he's sitting there fanning the Buddha. He's shaved his head. He's in robes. And um, the, uh, the king comes and pays homage to, um, to the Buddha. Doesn't recognize Angulimala because he's in robes. He's shaved his head. Um, and uh, the Buddha says, so what are you up to? You know, you've got all these people here. Is there... Is there um, is there some, like, you know, war happening in a neighboring kingdom? And the, and the king says, no, there is this, uh, this murderous man, Angulimala, but I don't think I'm going to be able to track him down. And then the Buddha said to the king, if you were to see Angulimala with shaven head and beard, clad in a yellow robe, gone forth from the home life into homelessness, and that he was abstaining from killing living beings, from taking that was not, which is not given, and from false speech, and eating only one day at a time. He was living the life of purity and virtue and noble conduct. If you saw him thus, how would you treat him? And the king said, Venerable sir, we would pay homage to him, invite him to accept the four requisites of a monk, and arrange for his protection. But of course that's not possible. How could such an evil character ever have such virtue and restraint. And so here Angulimala is, ex- I mean, the king is expressing the irredeemable, the belief in the irredeemability of Angulimala. And um, the Buddha says, this is Angulimala. And it's said that the hair on the back of the necks of the king stood on end. <laughs> and the Buddha said, don't be afraid. There's nothing for you to fear. In this case, you know, here's, a, here's another case of, of trust in a way. You know, the, the, it's a flip side of trust, right? The, in, in the case of the, the um, Angulimala um, trusted his teacher and went out to uh, create harm based on that trust. In this case, the, uh, the king is trusting the Buddha. And yet a big difference here in my, in my read of this story. So the king is trusting the word of the Buddha. Partly because he trusts the Buddha, because he understands the, the, the nobility of the Buddha. But a big difference here is the Buddha is asking him to refrain from harm. Refrain from harm. So this is, this is a place, again, you know, maybe, maybe we don't know, maybe the king can't know for himself whether, um, whether this person is dangerous or not. He trusts the Buddha, and here the Buddha is encouraging him to, uh, to refrain from violence. And so the Buddha accepts Angulimala's redemption and supports him. So... This is a long story, and what I'd thought to do, and I will do at this point, this is about where I thought I would stop, because um, it's about halfway through the story. So I would like to continue it next week. Um, but I'd like to, so I'd like to, to let a little bit of time about, to discuss this, if you have some interest in discussing it, and to point to some of the key pieces around um, perception and views and how we can be um, swayed by them and act in unethical ways and how we can maybe explore ethics as a, as a ground for us in uh, combating ignorance and craving. Um, and that, you know, this is a case, this is a case of, uh, you know, somebody that many of us would think was irredeemable. And yet, the possibility. Although at this point, my understanding is that, that and, and the, the, the story that we'll continue with next week is the story of Angulimala's awakening. Uh, at this point, it, the understanding is that when Angulimala sits down to meditate, all he's getting is visions of killing people. You know, he is just overwhelmed with his, you know, so a, a lot of revisiting of that. And so his mind is not able to settle in deep meditation at this point. But he is committed to meeting his mind. I mean, I can only envision how... I mean, I see how much my mind, when I do something unethical, how much my mind uh, 
resonates and repeats and, and, you know, uh, and, and feels it, feels it over and over again. That's what said it was happening with Angulimala, that he was feeling the pain of the suffering that he'd caused. And this is a piece of our practice. And this is a piece of, of how we make that step from what seems irredeemable to redeemable. We, we turn towards that suffering. So I wanted to open it up to questions that next week, further on, we will talk about the, uh, uh, how, how Angulimala kept going after this. So uh, comments or questions? Um, anyone? Yeah, would you pass the mic back? Um, your comment about um, favoring the information we receive that agrees with what we're thinking <laughs> strikes home. I um, I don't take the time or the interest or the desire to listen to other opinions that don't agree with mine. At this point, there's a lot of that going on. Yes, there is. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot of what's going on in our country right now. Yes. We've yes. got people, you know, aligned with their views and not able to communicate. Yeah. yeah. So it can divide people so, yes. so severely. And I don't know what to do with that because I... I feel I become upset if I listen to the other yeah. opinions, and so, I, do so, I withdraw? What do I do? Yeah. So this is a this is a really great question, and and you know I think this speaks to being skillful around it. Um, so uh, um, we have to we have to understand where we are in this process, and the first piece might be recognizing, yeah, you know. I read the stories that agree with what I, I believe, and I consciously don't read those stories. I'm noticing this right now. I, I'm noticing that, yes, I will read those stories. I'm aware that I'm doing that. So that's the first thing to know. I'm aware that I am consciously ignoring a whole side of the picture. So that's, that's an important thing to know. You know, that, that I think there, is, there are elements that, you know, believe basically that they know the truth and the other side is just false and so why bother? So that's, that's a different way of approaching it, right? It's like I under, understanding that this pattern, partly because of the, the kind of um, emotional reaction that happens when we read things that don't agree with what we believe, um, that it can get sticky. And so... Um, uh, you know, then and then there are times when I do. You know, when I feel like, okay, I'm ready. I am ready to listen to that other the other perspective and try to uh, explore the reactivity. You know, so this this can happen. Um, <clears throat> you know, you may not want to do this with uh, people in direct conversation at first, um, but to uh, to read maybe read a different perspective. Read a few sentences. Stop. You know, do this as a mindfulness practice. Read a few sentences. Stop. Take in. Ooh, wow. Ooh, I got charged with that. Okay, feel that. Then, then see. You know, feel into that charge. See if you can get below the the reactivity of it into something a little more um, meaningful. You know, the, the, the perhaps perha- that reactivity is often based in fear or confusion. It's also, it can be based in um, recognizing, uh, um, uh, wanting people to be safe and happy and the fear that that's not possible. And so you might begin to find threads in there that are, are a little bit deeper than the immediate reactivity. 
And so just it, using it as a, as a practice. First of all, recognizing, yes, this is, this is, this what, this is what happens in my mind. You know? it, ha- it happens to all of us. It's very natural for it to happen. It's almost the way our, our system is designed somehow. And yet it, it, uh, you know, it's like recognizing that the world is round. <laughs> you know? that, that's not going to be, you know, it's like that, that whole... Um, uh, recognition of the earth being round, you know, is, is something that goes counter to our direct perception. And so, you know, everything, everywhere we look makes us think the, the earth is flat. And yet we've had enough understanding and we, we see the world from space, we can see that it's round, and so we can begin to counter that direct perception with that understanding. And so there's not too many people out there that still believe the earth is flat, although I just heard recently there is still a flat earth society out there. There are people who still believe the earth is flat. Um, you know, it's, it, it's like they can't go beyond that direct perception to a deeper wisdom. And so knowing that this is a propensity of our minds, we can kind of counter it with recognizing, yes, I tend to just gravitate to things that confirm what I believe. And maybe I can every now and then step into that other side and recognize how, first of all, how do I respond? And then maybe get to the place where... I, I might be able to have a conversation. I'm fortunate enough to be able to do that with some people in my life at this point and uh, very different views and uh, I'll feel into my response and then maybe and, and then maybe able to ask and, and what are your you know what are you, what are your concerns about that you know so that there can actually be a conversation that can happen um, so it's a it's a challenge, but we need to know that capacity, that, that propensity for ignorance is there. That propensity for that, that pattern to happen is there. And you're seeing it, so that's, that's great. And then, you know, maybe taking some baby steps. But don't, not taking so many baby steps, so many steps in that direction that you end up like lost in the swamp of the reactivity. That's, that's, it's like we need to kind of touch in to the point where we feel the, 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 the reactivity start to rise, then maybe take a step back, feel into that, so that it's done as a mindfulness practice. And then we develop the capacity to meet those reactions and can hang out a little bit longer with the information and the, the perspective without you know, flaring and without losing mindfulness. So it's, it's like neither just blowing up or just sinking into that reactivity. So it's, use it as a practice. Yeah, thank you. And we need to stop, so more next week. Thank you.